Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. If you've binged much TV this pandemic, you might have happened upon a new reality TV show on Netflix called My Unorthodox Life. It's centered on Julia Hart, a high-powered CEO and fashion designer with a penchant for short skirts and sky-high heels. Okay, guys, hello? Executive decision here. We are throwing out all the shoes. What, what? I want like 60 pairs of those. Where's someone who can- In between design meetings and runway shows, Julia is also the cool, straight-talking, supportive mom to her four growing and grown-up kids. No, seriously, there's a reason I bought you a vibrator. There's no way you can, like, have someone pleasure you if you don't know how to pleasure yourself. Okay, mama. (laughs) This glitzy, champagne-filled modern Manhattan lifestyle, as depicted in the series, is a far cry from the world Julia left in 2013. It's really hard to imagine that just a few years ago, I was living in an extreme ultra-Orthodox Jewish community called Yeshivisha Haimisha for my entire life until the time I was 40. If you've ever watched the show and wondered, how did this happen? Well, Julia's ready to share her full story in her new memoir called Brazen. The show is just a snippet. It's a hint of what my past was. The book is the whole messy, convoluted, complex, disastrous story. The book covers it all, from her childhood in communist Russia to the strict ultra-Orthodox community to the cutthroat New York fashion industry. Honestly, it's an unbelievable story. Julia Hart, let's talk about you. You're a woman of many names. Tell us about your your previous names and how they represent very different parts of your life. Good question. So, you know, funnily enough, I was supposed to be named Berenica if we want to start at the very beginning, but my parents came to the clerk in Russia at the time to give me that name because it was the name of a Russian Jewish princess. And the clerk refused it because he said, it's too Jewish sounding. You're going to destroy your child's chances at a future. People shouldn't know she's Jewish. So that's how I was supposed to be named. And then when I was a baby and I still didn't have a name, my parents, uh, and I used to dance around, like literally spin on my tush. And so uh, there was a, a spinning top called Yulia in Russian. And so I became Yulia. And when we moved to America, Yulia became Julia. And then in 12th grade, in my very ultra-Orthodox fundamentalist world, because I wanted a good shidduch, a good match, Julia became Talia. Uh, So Talia was started in 12th grade because the matchmakers told my parents, no one's going to marry a Julia. Why? Because it's not a Jewish name. And there's a whole big thing about Jewish names. So Like um, when it talks about the Jews in Egypt, it says that one of the reasons that God saved them is because they kept their Jewish names. 
So it's a very big deal not to have a secular name. So like, for example, if you look at my children, Batsheva, Shalomo, Miriam, Aaron, they're all very biblical names, right? People might, the only person in my class who had a secular name was yours truly, the only one. So, you know, I stood out in that way. And so, you know, to up my chances of a good match, I know it sounds like the 18th century because it was, uh, we changed my name from Julia to Talia, which is a Hebrew name. It means the dew of God. Uh, and then when I left my community, I went back to being Julia. So that's my name history in a nutshell. <laughs> well, let's talk about so many things in between, starting at the very beginning and your parents. Uh, they were brilliant by all accounts. They become IBM engineers, but in Russia and are part of the Communist Party. So how and why did they escape Communist Russia and land in, of all places, Austin, Texas? So my parents are genuinely extraordinarily brilliant. I mean, I think my mother is the most brilliant person I've ever met in my life, hands down, still to this day. Um, they were brought up on the concept of a living for an ism, right? Uh, you know, there's a book by Yuval Noel Harari called uh, Homo Sapiens, and it talks about how communism is a religion like anything else, right? A religion is when you have a certain set of rules and there's that divisive feeling of if you don't believe in this set of rules, you're a bad person, you're evil, you're the devil. That's religion, right? A set of rules and reward and punishment, that whole thing. So they were brought up on the concept of communism. Now, my mother wasn't really a devout communist to begin with because she had experienced a lot of anti-Semitism in her life. So she was not a believer, but she wanted to be a believer, Right. And my father, now his family was very high up in the Communist Party. His father was a general in World War II. And my father was the head of the Komsomol, which is the youth arm of the Communist Party. Um, and they were this very young, handsome couple. My mother, I think, was 20. My father was 19. My mother's a year older than my dad. And the Communist Party, this is, you're going back in the early... 70s, right? This is well, actually the late 60s because I was born in 1971. So you're going back the late 60s, early 70s, and you weren't allowed to travel. This is pre-Gorbachev. People weren't allowed to travel in Russia. They stayed because, you know, communism didn't want you to see what a disaster communism was. But because they thought my parents were so committed, they thought that, you know, they could go around this young, gorgeous couple and like spread the word of communism. But what ended up happening when my parents traveled around Russia is they realized that communism is a disaster and it doesn't work. And they saw so much misery and unhappiness. And so they totally became disillusioned with communism. And so like two very idealistic college students who had been brought up on living for an ism, they went and searched for another ism. And what they chose was Judaism. And so now here was a new cause to live and die for, to put yourself in danger for. And it was exciting, right? Because think about it. When my parents lived in Russia, being religious, praying, going to synagogue, following any religious edicts was illegal. It could land you in the gulag. And my father was actually arrested uh, for practicing Judaism. And so at the same time, so my father gets arrested. It's a whole big drama. My mother just had me and they got arrested because they were practicing Judaism. And then there is this bill passed by the United States uh, called the Varick Bill, which basically traded Jews for grain because there was so much anti-Semitism in communist Russia. And there were so many thousands of Jews that were suffering in Russia. And they, Russia also had a hunger, right? There was a massive hunger. So basically the United States said, okay, we're going to embargo grain and we're not going to give you any grain unless you give us some juice. So my parents and I were traded for grain. And from there we took, uh, there was an organization called Pius, which basically took Jews out of Russia, 
First, we were put into, a, I don't want to say the word internment camp, because that sounds pretty negative, a holding camp, I don't know, in Austria for six months before they figured out what to do with us. Then we moved to Italy and we're in a holding camp in Italy that was run by the Vatican. Actually, the Vatican helped me get out of Russia and into the United States. Uh, and we lived there for six months. And the way that it worked is someone had to adopt your family and ensure that someone would pay for your apartment, for your housing until you got on your own feet and were able to support yourself. So the Jewish community of Austin, Texas, uh, basically adopted my family. And how old were you at the time, Julia, when you got to Austin? Three and a half years old. By the time I got to Austin, I was five. You get to Austin and you live a pretty normal life. I mean, you go to a private school, you have lots of non-Jewish friends, you wear shorts, and then suddenly things change. What happened? So it's interesting because, you know, those are the only happy memories I have of my childhood at this time in Austin and my life was normal, you know? And I, and I, as you said, I had friends, I was learning about the world outside. I had all the possibility in front of me. Um, and then my parents went again, searching for an ism to suffer for. And it was the conservative and reform communities that adopted my family, but it was the ultra Orthodox community that my parents felt the most drawn to because it was the most difficult. It required sacrifice. And it told you all the rules. You didn't have to wonder about anything. It removed free choice completely. If it wasn't in the Torah, no worries. You call and ask your rabbi. You don't have to make any decisions by yourself. And think about it. My mother is the most brilliant person I know. And she chose a way of life where women are not allowed to be educated. She literally martyred herself on the cross of another person. You say they were drawn to the Orthodox Church. And I'm curious why, psychologically, is it because they were so ingrained with sort of this notion of following that communism encourages that that was sort of, it was almost in their DNA. Exactly. That's what I genuinely believe. Freedom is frightening. With choice comes fear, the unknown, mistakes, right? Many people love to be told what to do. And I think that my parents were brought up with the idea that there has to be a cause greater than you that there is a set of rules that someone greater than you has written that defines your life. And the more difficult that set of rules, the better, because they were brought up with that idea of suffering for a cause. So they just switched causes. Having said that, they were considered lost Jews because they came to this Orthodox Jewish faith from being less devout. And exactly. that really affected their place in society in a way. Oh. Explain that for us, Julia. I think the easiest way to do it is if you've ever seen any movies like um, Downton Abbey or what's the latest, Bridgerton or any, where there is- The Gilded Age. The Gilded Age. Do you want to understand my child, like that community, just go back a hundred years. It's exactly that, minus the really fabulous dresses and parties. But other than that, but the whole concept of the fact that your biology defines your destiny. Women have certain roles and their intellect is X. Men have certain roles and their intellect is Y. And within society, there's that class structure. So in my society, there are the nobles, just like there were nobles in England. Those nobles, instead of being born to lords or dukes or duchesses, they're born to great rabbis. And that's nobility. Those people, and especially if your family stayed religious through World War II, stayed religious through 
you know, coming to the United States, you were like coming from the Mayflower. It's exactly the same as the Gilded Age, right? You were blue bloods. And so to marry into those families, either you have to be a noble or a blue blood too, right? Either you have to have great lineage in your background or what was the one thing that bought you lineage in those days? You may not have noble blood, but you've got enough money. Then you can buy yourself a noble husband with a lot of lineage. And that's how your family grows in stature. And by the way, even though when I was getting married, my parents didn't have enough money to buy us some lineage, by the time my younger brothers getting married, they did. And so my brothers all married into very uh, rabbinic, famous families who had had, you know, so many rabbis and their past and the whole nine yards. So in the end, my parents did succeed in marrying into the Jewish nobility. But for me, when I was growing up, you know, my parents, my father was just slowly starting to build his fortune. Uh, we, you know, even though we had what the outside world would consider a fantastic life, you know, a nice middle-class upbringing in my world, we were poor, dirt poor, right? Because to be wealthy in that world, you've got to be crazy wealthy. We're talking not enough to even be a millionaire. You've got to have tens of millions of dollars because you have to support your 11 children or your 13 children and their children. And you have to pay for their education. So the amount, like I think my father once told me at a certain point, he was spending close to a million dollars a month supporting all my siblings and all of their children. Most of my siblings have between five, six, seven, eight, nine children. The math, you have eight kids and they each have 10 kids. You've got 80 grandchildren you have to support. You've got to be very wealthy. So when I was growing up, we didn't have that kind of wealth, right? And so because I was not born religious, because I was not brought up religious, because I was Russian, I was a second-class citizen. Add to that being a second-class citizen because you're a woman, not so fun. <laughs> in Russia, I was a second-class citizen because I was a Jew. And in the Jewish community, I was a second-class citizen because I was born in Russia. Go figure. <laughs> so then your mom gets pregnant when you're 10 years old, Julia, and that seems to push her over the edge, driving her further and further into orthodox ideology and practices. Tell us about that. Well, my mother was unable to have children. Um, I was her miracle baby. She was told she could never have children. I was her miracle baby. And then she had multiple miscarriages after me between myself and my my sister who's after me, who's 10 years younger than I am. So in that 10 year period, she had miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. By the way, I've had six miscarriages. I've been pregnant 10 times, believe it or not. Uh, she had all these miscarriages and then she becomes kosher and religious and immediately becomes pregnant. So in her mind, that's God saying, you know, you're doing the right thing. Now you're following my laws. I'm going to give you children. And so it was one after the other. It was Mir, uh, Hannah, and then not 11 months later, my brother Yitzchak was born. They're not even a year apart. They're 11 months apart. 11 months later, my brother Yitzchak was born, and then the other seven siblings. What did it look like for her to reward the blessing of motherhood with deeper and deeper religious practices? How did life in your house change? I mean, I became the mother because, and nothing, and not in any way, shape or form to denigrate her, but she had terrible pregnancies and no help. And so she gave birth to Hannah and then two months later became pregnant again. And so she couldn't take care of her first baby because she was pregnant with her second and she had placenta previa and all sorts of crazy things. So it fell upon me to watch my daughter, my sister. And, and I say my daughter because genuinely, when I got engaged and moved out of the house, my siblings packed their bags. They didn't realize they weren't coming with me because the entire time that they were growing up, they called me mommy. They thought most families have two mothers and a dad. Because that's, you know, I was the one who put them to bed every night. I was the one who did homework with them. 
I was the one who, you know, wiped their little bottoms and changed their diapers. And I, it fell to me to face that. Um, and again, nothing against my mother. She was constantly pregnant or having miscarriages or pregnant again, or, you know, and it's very, very onerous on a woman's body to be constantly in that state. So I understand why she needed my help. Um, but of course it was a tremendous load uh, on a very young person. She ended up having seven more kids. So did you resent the fact that you were responsible for them and taking care of them? Yes, I absolutely did. I had no childhood. I, you know, on the weekends, you know, my friends would go and hang out with each other on Shabbos because you're not allowed to drive. You're not allowed to, you know, you can't use electricity, right? Um, I was stuck at home every day watching my siblings. You know, I would come home from school, do my homework, and then do homework with my siblings, put them to bed, feed them, clean, you know, do the laundry. It was, you know, I mean, it prepared me for my life now, <laughs> but, you know, I was nonstop, you know, and it was, I think the part of it that was the most difficult, other than the fact that I didn't really have a childhood, is that that responsibility weighed very heavily on me. And being left alone to babysit children when you're 11 years old and there are three newborns in the house is really scary. And were there other ways the religion kind of manifested itself? I mean, what about the oh, deeply yeah. religious practices that sort of took hold in your household? So it was not only just all these babies being born and you having to care for them, but what else was happening in your home? So on the other side was, you know, the destruction of everything, I would say, in the sense that, you know, as we became more and more religious, my life shrunk smaller and smaller. So first it was, okay, you can't go anywhere on Shabbos because you can't drive. Then it was, you can't eat at your friend's house because they're not kosher. So then that immediately created this massive separation between me and my friends. People don't realize if you can't have a meal with someone, go to someone's house for lunch, it really divides you. I went from being intellectually stimulated, believing that the world was my oyster and that and I could accomplish anything to being told that all those things are bad and that I shouldn't be interested in learning, that I should never do anything forward facing, that my purpose in life is to be in the background. And I would say that the one word that made my life so small as to be unendurable was the word modesty. This idea that I am responsible for men's thoughts, that men aren't capable of controlling their own desires, and that my purpose in life is to help a man be a great Torah scholar. That's the only way to goodness in my world. And therefore, the only way to being evil in my world was to distract a man from his Torah learning. How does one distract a man from his Torah learning? Well, you may sing, and therefore, he may get attracted. You could dance and he'd see you dance and get attracted. So when you have this concept that your purpose in life is only in relation to a man, to be a good woman, you have to be behind the scenes, don't cause any trouble, be his helpmate, be the stool that he stands on so that he can be a great scholar. And to the flip side, if you distract him, you're an evil person and it's on you. This is on you. That concept that a woman has to shrink herself and make herself almost invisible so that a man would never come to sin was the most unendurable part of my life because I'm not quiet and I'm not shy and I'm not a background person and I love to learn and I'm curious about everything. And I was constantly told that my intellect was inferior to a man's. And you know, you get told something enough times, you start believing it. When we come back, how Julia found the courage to escape. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. 
Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hey, everyone. It's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fast forward to 19, Julia, you're married off and <laughs> living in this conservative community in Monsey. Can you describe what Monsey was like? And if somebody dropped down from Mars, what they would see in that community? You see women in shaitals, pushing baby carriages with lots of children all around. Uh, you see men in black hats walking in packs with white shirts from one yeshiva to a sh- different yeshiva. There are synagogues in every corner. And why do women always wear wigs? It has to do with the fact that your hair is very attractive. And so when you get married, the only person that you should be attracting is your husband. Therefore, no other man should ever see your hair. Um, and when I remember saying, I remember asking and said, but the wigs look as beautiful as real hair does. And I was answered by a rabbi, when you see a fake apple at a table, do you want to bite into it? And so it was all about if it's your real hair, it moves and it's sexy. And so a man will bite into it, so to speak, but not if it's fake, right? So not only that, but there are chumras. There are laws that are, what what can I say, that are like, additions to the actual law that people follow because they want to have righteous children or they want a righteous husband. And I was thought if I did righteous children, not only could I not wear my hair uncovered outside of the house, I had to sleep with my hair covered because the walls of my house should not see my nakedness. And you started to question, who am I? Why am I here? And... What happens? Do you have an epiphany about your faith and your life? Yes. So my entire life, from the moment I moved into that community, I really struggled between who I am as a person and who I was supposed to be to please God. The easiest way to explain it is like, you feel like you don't belong in your own skin. I spent my life itchy. I don't know how else to say it. Because who you are. And who you're supposed to be, don't check, no matter how hard you try. And so I wanted to know, why can't I study? Why can't I learn Gemara? Why can't I study the Talmud? Why are men smarter than women? I don't think men are smarter than women. Why do I have to be subservient and obedient to my husband? But I thought that that made me a bad person. And then my daughter Miriam is born. And this kid is literally born from day one, a rebel, a rebel doesn't care about anything or what people say. If it's not logical, she's not going to do it. And she started questioning at five years of age. And she would go to my husband and she would say, Abba, I want to play soccer. I want to ride a bike in jeans. I want to play basketball. I want to sing at the Passover table. And she was told, no, 
no, no. And she would say, why? And her teachers, my husband would say, because it might make a man attracted to you. And she would say, but why is that my problem? Is he responsible for my sins? And I was like, wait, yeah, that's exactly right. She was five, five years old, literally this little five-year-old. And they had convinced me that I was bad for thinking these things, but I had never voiced it out publicly. And to have my five-year-old say it, they could not convince me that she was evil. So she gave me permission to question. She is the reason that I said to myself, it's not that something's wrong with me. Miriam started making you question your own faith, Miriam, your second daughter. But it was a slow boil for you. You didn't have this aha moment, I'm out of here. Like, you're right, Miriam, let's hit the road. This took a tremendous amount of thought and courage. What was it like when you severed yourself from this way of life that your parents believed in so deeply and that was really almost all you had ever known, at least from a young age? It, you know, I think the easiest way to describe what it felt like, did you ever see that movie, Kate and Leopold? Yes, I did. Yes. Wasn't it with Hugh Jackman? Yes. Remember, he's like an inventor and he drops in in this wormhole time into the 21st century. And he's just like so disoriented and discombobulated. That was me. That's what it felt like. You were walking into a world. I didn't know a single person. I'd never been on a date. I'd never gone to a bar. I'd never been to a club. I didn't know what an invoice was. I didn't know what a contract was. I didn't know anything about anything. And not only that, nobody knew me. It is a, it's a kind of, I guess, an existential question. Do you exist if no one knows of your existence? It's a very disorienting feeling to be dropped in a world where nobody at all, no one, Not a single human being knows you. It's really frightening and terrifying. I was terrified, terrified, completely terrified, stressed out of my mind, looking around myself and like, what, how am I going to, like, how am I going to do this? I don't know anything. And how did you, how did you navigate this new world and this path to becoming, you know, a career in fashion and a designer and suddenly you have to adjust. How did you do that? A lot of it, I guess, was luck and meeting the right people, but it must have been something deep inside you as well. I think a lot of it, if I would bring it down, you know, I think that I do believe in God. So I do believe that God helps those who help themselves. You know, I've, I've seen, I see a lot of miracles in my story, um, but there were so many moments where I could have given up And I think many people would have, and I just couldn't because it was success or death. Those were my, that's how it felt. Either I was dying or I was winning, one of the two. And so when the, you know, the stakes are that high. um, So I think that's number one, that I was so determined and so stubborn and so focused. And I'm a planner by nature. It took me 11 years to leave, 11 years. And you know, I educated myself. I read literature. I read philosophers and history and everything that I could get my hands on to at least get some grasp of the outside world. I mean, to me, books saved my life. You go back to Monsi, or you did for six years after you left. And what was it like navigating those two worlds? Was it like stepping back in time once again? I really felt like really like a time traveler, you know, like you see all these TV shows now where they pop into one century and pop it. That's what it was like. I kept my shaitel in my glove compartment. So explain to people who might not be familiar what a shaitel is. A shaitel is a wig. And by the way, you know, right before I left my community, uh, right after Hurricane Sandy, there were posters put all over Muncie stating that Hurricane Sandy occurred because women's wigs were too long. And so it was our fault 
that Hurricane Hurricane Sandy happened because women's wigs were too long. I'm sure you didn't know that. Now you do. <laughs> so. After the break, the price Julia's had to pay for leaving her Hasidic community. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm curious about your relationship with your children, but also with the rest of your family, your seven siblings, et cetera. What is that like today? It's really sad. You know, my extended family, my siblings, my parents don't speak to me. Um, Again, this should not make anyone think badly of them. Because it's not them, it's what they think God wants. It's the laws, it's the rules themselves that prevent my family from speaking to me. Because what they're taught is that the way that I live my life is the embodiment of evil. I married a non-Jew. I keep kosher. I dress like I dress. I'm extremely forward-facing. I talk about sexuality publicly. I support my daughter who is a bisexual. I am just evil through and through. And so I understand why they don't speak to me because in their minds, I'm a terrible influence. And one of their children could become irreligious or God forbid, start asking questions, uncomfortable questions. And that's dangerous because I'm even more dangerous than most people of the Orthodox community because I succeeded. I didn't fail. I didn't become a drug addict. I didn't commit suicide. You know, I'm, I succeeded. And the story back there is that if you leave, you won't succeed. You will become a drug addict or you will kill yourself because the really, the reality is you're not, you're not equipped to handle the outside world. You are thrown into the 21st century. And there are a lot of mental and emotional and psychological and just you know, practical difficulties that occur with such a vast and sharp shift in the way that you live your life. And so most people do have a difficult time surviving it. They just can't. Uh, so, you know, it's it's an extraordinarily almost impossible thing to do. Um, and I understand why to my family, I'm dangerous. I'm just dangerous. I'm dangerous. And, you know, my children, I'm so lucky because most women like me who leave, lose their children. 
I'm one of the few people I know who not only did I not lose my children, my children came with me. That's a big, big deal. Because you were sort of between two worlds and raised a certain way, Julia, did that take a toll on the children? Because as you were adjusting to this new life, um, that must have been a bit confusing for them. And I know your eldest daughter did struggle. I think it was not just confusing. I think it was the most disorienting, frightening thing for them. Think about it. Here's a woman who taught them their whole lives to do X, that this is the path to goodness, that this is the only life. I remember giving my daughter Bachava such a hard time because she was wearing her shaitel in a way where you could see a little bit of her hairline. And I gave her a hard time because that's not serious. How old were your kids when you left? So Bachava was the eldest. She was 19 at the time. She's the one that struggled the most because she was brought up to be the most religious. Shlomo didn't understand what I was doing, but he didn't really care in the sense that he was like, if it makes my mother happy, I'm happy. And he wasn't happy either. He got a lot of grief uh, because he was brought up in Atlanta and that wasn't totally enough. And so he kind of was questioning himself. So he didn't really have such a big issue that Miriam was just jumping up and down and she was just like, let's get out of here, hurry up, when are we leaving? So it was really Batsheva that struggled, um, especially that first year, it kind of really killed our relationship. But now, I mean, you know, she has a great life. She thanks me literally at least once a week uh, and says, thank you, Eva, for taking us out. So, you know, slowly but surely with a lot of patience, um, and a lot of stubbornness, <laughs> you know, we made it. We made it. And your husband, ex-husband, still lives in the community. And what is your relationship? No. no? Does not. He moved. Well, tell me about your ex-husband. He's awesome. First of all, he's such a good man. That's why, as you see in my book, in all in the television show, I always say that he was as much a victim as I was. He was told that that was his role as my husband to, you know, control me and to enforce the laws because otherwise his children would suffer, his family would suffer, the community would suffer. He's a good person and I never had an issue with him. And um, what's really beautiful is that, you know, through all the difficulty that I'm facing now, he and his wife, his new wife, who's the loveliest human being, they call me almost every day to check in on me to ask me how I'm doing, to just give me support. You know, life has such a strange way of showing you who, you know, how people are in their true essence. And, you know, I am so grateful to both of them. He has left Muncie. He now lives in Teaneck, New Jersey with his non-shaital wearing college graduate wife who has an amazing profession, who has a very successful business. He's over lists, but it's not even remotely fundamentalist. He's not even remotely black hat. He's a modern Orthodox Jew. He's got TVs in his house. He goes to Broadway shows. He wants my kids to go to college. He accepts my daughter's sexuality. He is literally, it took me eight years, but he's out too. Are other Hasidic women, Julia, so cloistered and shut off from the real world? They can't see your life now and wouldn't be inspired by you because they don't really know. They're kept in the dark. Look, you know as well as I do, unfortunately, that there's two groups of women. There are the women who want more, who struggle for more, who fight for more. Think the suffragettes. Think about the women who marched for equal rights. Think about why in this country the Equal Rights Amendment was never passed. Who was the person who prevented that? I think, you know, it was Phyllis Schlafly, Schlafly, right? It was a woman. So unfortunately, you have the women who march, who demand change, who want better for their daughters. And then you have the women who defend the very system that imprisons them. And it isn't because they're bad or evil or wrong. It's because they truly believe in their innermost hearts that that's what God wants. That's what's genius about any of these philosophies or religions. And it's nothing to do with Judaism. You see it in 
fundamentalist Christianity, fundamentalist Islam, fundamentalist Hinduism, wherever there is rules. Uh, you know, I read the other day that in Russia, they they passed a law that a husband can beat his wife and it's totally legal as long as it doesn't leave marks on her body. And when asked why that law was okay, oh, because it's the tradition of the Greek Orthodox Church. So the cleverness of all of these isms is that they convince a woman herself that this is what God wants. And so she defends the very system that imprisons her because she thinks it's the truth and the right way to live. You have faced so many challenges and persevered, Julia, <laughs> from the get-go. And, and obviously you've had to work very hard to get where you are in the fashion industry. And here you now hit another bump in the road, another obstacle, being fired as CEO and co-founder of Elite World Group. So how are you dealing with kind of this setback um, and moving forward. And what do you think is the message you hope people take away from your book? I love those questions. Those are two great questions. To the first one, what I would say is I have tried to eradicate all of the inferiority uh, complex feelings that I have when it comes to men, right? And I thought, you know, after I became creative director of La Perla and then co-owner of uh, and CEO of Elite World Group and all of this stuff, that it would be like, I'd make, right? Like, I am no longer afraid of men. I am no longer controlled by men. I can no longer be abused by men. And then when all of this happened, I realized, I'm not there yet. I still have that inferiority complex. I still have somewhere in my head where a man knows best. I still have a ways to go before I eradicate those feelings of male superiority. And I think what I learned is that I'm going to be a work in progress for the rest of my life. I'm going to have to every day remind myself that a man is not better than me. Every day, remind myself that you have to fight for your freedom. Um, I don't know what, you know, the future will bring. And I'm sure there will be, once I overcome this obstacle, I'm sure it won't be the last one. You know, the other problem is that I'm a, I always, I walk into industries and I create change. And arbiters of change are not very popular people because they're knocking down the status quo and, you know, taking power away from those people who had it. So, I kind of make enemies wherever I go and, you know, and I attack fundamentalism and fundamentalism attacks back. Like I literally constantly put myself, sometimes I say to myself, just stop. Like you could live such a comfortable, easy life. Why, why are you torturing yourself? Because I want to change the world because I want there to be a better world because I believe in the goodness of mankind because I think women are extraordinary and that we're capable of anything we set our minds to. And that is the purpose of my book. If I could do it, uneducated, knowing no one, coming from the 18th century to now, in eight years, at 42 years of age, anyone can do it. Anyone can do it, any age. And most of the impediments we have are in our minds. And the minute we give ourselves permission to question, permission to say, this is not okay. This is not the life I want. This is not who I am. I'm going to fight for what I want. The minute we give ourselves permission to do that is the minute that we start on the path to success. You know, when my book came out, I had letters. Well, I had tens of thousands of messages from people from my community, from the Muslim community, from communities all over the world, uh, telling me their stories and how the show had changed their life. I had two women tell me that they were planning on committing suicide. One of them on the day the show launched and chose to live life because they'd seen the show. And the show is just a snippet. It's a hint of what my past was. The book is the whole messy, convoluted, complex, disastrous story. And I think if people see that the mistakes are part of the journey, 
The trauma is part of the journey. Not knowing something is good for you. Learning new things and becoming unafraid of the unknown is the strongest tool you could put in your hands because that's the only way you're going to grow and change. And so that's what I hope occurs when people read this book. I want them to get up and start their stories. A big thank you to Julia Hart, who chatted with me in between filming the second season of My Unorthodox Life. Her new book is called Brazen, and it's out now. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements and Adriana Fazio. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at Katie Couric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.